Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Before we get started today, I wanted to make sure to thank all of the people who support this show and all the people who send it along to their family and friends and also to the people who have left some of the same groups or some similar kinds of relationships where they think the content will be important to them, interesting to them, therapeutic for them, and that's what this is all about. And as you know, I sustain the show pretty much on my own, which I knew I was getting myself into when I started, but I said yes to getting started anyway. And luckily, though, people have come forward to help partner with me, and it helps me with some of my costs, certainly not all of them yet. I wish it did, but thank you, thank you, thank you for the people who helped me along the way to keep this on the air. And please, please, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to help keep this going so that I can make sure to keep it as a public service for so many people. To the people also who give $20 or more per month to Lynn, Julia, Trimian, Elizabeth, Sheila, Holly, Catherine, Tammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislav, Zofia, Kathy, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Christina, Brianna, Ludwig, Scott, Peter and Cynthia, Linda, Jolie, Camus, Lillian, Sylvia, and Maureen. I could not do this without you, and I really mean it. And anyone else who's listening who gets something out of this show, please help us out to keep it on the air. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And today on the show, we have part one of my conversation with a woman named Caroline Lorson. I was actually on her podcast, Inside the Program, and it was great for us to talk about a lot about what happens when people get into groups that they think are supposed to be helpful for them or are sent to groups by their families because the families think they're supposed to be helpful to them, but they turned out to be horrendously abusive. I had done some podcast interviews towards the beginning of this podcast, over a year ago, maybe even two at this point, with Nick Gallia, who had been in a residential treatment center that was horrendous. And so I believe we actually have three episodes that you can listen to where I have a conversation with Nick. But all along the time that I interviewed Nick to now, I've been thinking and trying to be able to have people on the show who can talk more about this unregulated and potentially destructive industry. And that's not to say all of the places are awful. They certainly are not. But some of them are, and they get away with it. Caroline Lorson 
is a survivor of the troubled teen industry. At the age of 14, she was forcibly removed from her home in Southern California by two transporters and was flown across the country to a lockdown behavior modification school in upstate New York. She stayed at this facility for 29 months and was stripped of all of her human rights and subjected to coercive thought reform techniques. It took Caroline years to recover from her experiences, and she now actively works to reform the troubled teen industry through an organization called Breaking Code Silence and with her podcast, Inside the Program. Breaking Code Silence is a movement organized by a network of survivors and activists to raise awareness of the problems in the troubled teen industry and the need to reform. By using their many voices to tell their stories, they aim to create change and protect vulnerable youth from abuse. Here's part one of my conversation with Caroline now. So today on the show, I have somebody who I have already been able to speak to on her show, which is which was a great experience. And it was great also to see that while we were speaking kind of generally, it got specific for a lot of really important reasons based on her experiences. So I asked her to come on the show and here she is. And I think we're going to have a really important and intense conversation, but also one that reveals something that has happened in the past and is still happening today. So welcome, Caroline. You want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so grateful that we got to connect on my podcast. And I just love how this has uh, been such a beautiful collaboration. So yes, thank you for having me. And I am so excited to enlighten everyone today about a movement that I'm a part of and also some experiences that I had when I was a young teenager. Um, I'm a part of a movement called Breaking Code Silence. You can look us up. You can Google it. We are on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Hashtag Breaking Code Silence. And Essentially, this shared experience that we all have is that we as teenagers, I'm now 30. So, you know, this was again 15, 16 years ago, but is still going on today. Uh, we were removed from our, our homes by what they call escorts or transporters. Some of these uh, children would also be escorted by their parents sometimes, but we were taken to uh, facilities across the nation and left there. And so sometimes these are boarding schools, wilderness camps. They can be um, even out of the country. There's several programs that are in Tranquil, or uh, excuse me, there was one called Tranquility Bay, which was in Jamaica. There was one in Czech Republic, Samoa, Mexico. I mean, it is just such a widespread issue. But what happened inside these programs is essentially we were stripped of all of our human rights and any form of uh, ability to advocate for ourselves. And then, of course, just the indoctrination that happened at these facilities was horrifying and also something that has taken many years for a lot of us to be able to face or even understand what happened to us there. So now as adults, we are 
we're wanting to advocate for children that are still going through these experiences. And this industry as a whole is completely unregulated, uncertified, unqualified, uh, but they're just able to continue on. So we're hoping to bring an end to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The uh, unregulated, unqualified, we're, we'll certainly get back to that. I think, okay, a couple, couple hundred questions, if you don't mind. <laughs> Um, so here are just a few to start with, and then I'll get to the other 97. I think it's fascinating that there is a movement called Breaking Code Silence because there has been the need to stay silent or people have been silenced. And I think that that's a really important word to focus on um, because that is how these places get away with so much for so long. And I think also that there is a sense, I think, once you've been a teenager who's been sent to these places, that you're not going to be believed, that your story is going to be discounted because after all, you know, you were this acting out person or you were an addict or you were whatever. So somehow that makes you lose all your credibility uh, and those place itself preserves its credibility, which is so wildly unfair and wrong most of these situations. So we're talking about residential teen treatment, probably some that are not residential, but the things happening at residential are really frightening. And also the forced conversion therapy places and you know, all across the board where people were treated like criminals when either they had done some things they shouldn't have done or some really even hadn't but they were sent by their parents just because I guess the parents felt they couldn't handle it. I mean, what, how do you make sense of that? There are some people in these places who really didn't do anything at all. Right. Absolutely. So essentially I'm going to give you guys, walk you through a little bit of history because this will help everyone to better understand how this came to be and how they maintained these practices for so long. So essentially this started from Synanon, which was a very violent anti-drug cult that started in the 50s. And their methodology looked a lot like attack therapy and removing people from their family units and isolating them and then just terrifying them to the point that they would never use drugs again. That was the thought, right? Mm-hmm. So that was incredibly problematic, but as that ideology came about, it gave birth to this entire industry of tough love. And it was this idea that if we are cruel enough and harsh enough to an individual, it will help modify their behavior, whatever behavior that could possibly be. And so Eventually, in the late 80s, 90s, there was an organization called WASP, and that is the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. This organization, and keep in mind the people who, well, I'll I'll speak specifically, the man who started this organization, his name is Robert Litchfield. And previous to starting WASP, he was actually a dorm parent at the Provo Canyon School in Utah. So he he liked what he saw at Provo Canyon. He saw that there was an opportunity to make a lot of money. And he said, I could do that. I could do this. And he 
first opened a school in Utah called the Cross Creek Manor, which was a girls program. And eventually they opened up a boys counterpart program. But as they started opening these schools, and once they opened up one, they started popping up all over the place. And he would give schools to family members of his. He'd be like one of his brothers. He's like, hey, why don't you go start this school out in South Carolina? And so pretty much everyone is related to Robert Litchfield, either by family or by marriage, in direct relation to this person. No training, no training, no credentials. In fact, uh, there was one person who went and started the school in Jamaica, and he was a gas station attendant before working there. Um, There was another school in Montana, and uh, the owners of that school, I believe one was an electrician. And the other one was a handyman. And so these are clearly people that have absolutely no education in child development, child psychology, and just don't have any kind of credentials to be treating children, period. So what would happen? And I want uh, to dive a little deeper on why our movement's name is Breaking Code Silence. So when you went to this facility, immediately upon arriving, you can tell this is not right. Something is weird here. All of the children are standing in lines along each hallway, standing on the perimeter of the hallway and heads down, eyes looking forward, just completely sunken in faces. Hmm. You could tell there was just an emptiness to each child. And obviously, as you're arriving, knowing that you're about to be admitted to this, you're thinking, what am I in for? Yeah. So we were held under a code of silence. We were not allowed to talk at all for any reason or make any kind of noise 24 hours a day. And even any form of communication you could be punished for. So if I looked at someone and made eye contact and raised my eyebrows just as an acknowledgement of that person, that would be considered communication. And I would receive a Uh, what they call a a demerit or a correction. So once you arrive at this facility, you're pretty quickly instructed that uh, don't resist, don't question, or you're just going to be here longer. And so in order for you to get home or graduate the program, you were required to gain points and work up through a level system. Um, And a lot of those levels, in order to move up, You had to be supported by other people in the facility. You had to be supported by staff saying that they thought you were ready to move up. And keep in mind, again, these are the same people that have no credentials. Uh, Maybe they worked at Walmart before, and now your life is being determined by what they think. That silence from just our day-to-day life of being in silence to all of our communications with our parents were monitored. So we were allowed to write home one time a week. We were not allowed phone calls or any, we had no access to any phones, any sort of internet or communication with the outside world whatsoever. Like none, no communication with the outside world. So if I wrote home to my mom or my dad and I said, hey, this place is terrible. I think you should know what's happening here. Staff would actually maybe not send the letter Or they would redact it with a black Sharpie and just cross it out. 
And your parents were also instructed and primed that your child's going to lie. They're going to say that they're being abused. Do not believe them. This is manipulation. And they were repeated that sentiment over and over and over again, not to believe us no matter what we said. So there was already that element of, see, they're manipulating you now. They're just trying to get home. They're going to do the same thing once they get home and they're going to manipulate you. Right. So then parents don't want to be suckered, right? And they they want to be able to be strong because they're being told by the people they feel are qualified professionals to mm, look through what you're trying to do and see you as someone who's up to something or trying to get out of something, as opposed to you trying desperately to be protected, saved, rescued, to have them be informed also about what they're paying, I'm sure, dearly for. And I'm curious about that just for a moment. These programs are known to be very expensive. I mean, there's huge profit in it for these people. And that's probably why it becomes hard to graduate because the longer you're in, the more profit they make. And so what are the numbers on some of these places? Even if they're from the time that you were there, people with inflation can kind of do their own math on this. Right. So when I was there, typically, and it varied from facility to facility, but for the most part, parents were spending about 2500 to 5000 a month. Mm-hmm. So around forty to 50000 a year. And then I have actually heard recently that there's a lot of facilities that are charging around 120000 a year. Yes. So there was a lot of incentive to keep us there because uh, and they even had incentive for, so we had what was called a family representative. And this was the staff member that would communicate to your parents and let your family know how you're doing and what needs improvement. So we've actually found out after the fact that they received bonuses every month that we were there. Oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's horrifying. They received bonuses every month that we were there. And uh, they even had training in their handbooks that said things like, if a parent starts talking about removing their child from the program, you need to file a red flag report with at least three red flags for that child. So immediately that's putting into parents' heads, oh, they're not ready yet. Oh, they're having a red flag report. I better do anything possible to keep them there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And they would, uh, uh, one more thing on that, because I just find it um, just excruciatingly ironic, but they would, if a parent was having financial issues and they're like, I just can't afford this anymore. This facility would instruct them to either remortgage their house, borrow money, talk to other parents to see if they could borrow money. And then if none of those worked, they would transfer them to a place called Optimum Billing. And Optimum Billing was owned by WASP. So they're essentially saying, we'll loan you the money to keep your kid here, but we're going to charge you interest and you're going to have to pay us back. So it was this, they they had this whole ring and, and web of referral services uh, that seemed like independent referral services. And that would get the kids in the program once they were in the program. I mean, everything was just such an incestual circle. Oh, my. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, just think of 
getting an incentive for basically keeping people somewhere. I mean, I, I could imagine if I were running a place, um, I would hope to give an incentive to the people who I felt were really helpful, who were helping people graduate sooner, uh, if anything at all. But I could also imagine not incentivizing it in either direction, because then you're going to be pushing people forward or slowing people down because there, there's money involved and it shouldn't be about that at all. Um, okay, going back to the communication. So letters were monitored. There were phone calls. You said no phone calls once a week. So if you had to earn a phone call. And typically, so as I mentioned before, there were uh, a variety of levels that you had to gain. Okay. And as you moved up in those levels, and there were six levels total, as you moved up in those levels, you could gain certain privileges, like having a monthly 10-minute phone call with your parents, which was also monitored. I mean, you're, you're on a telephone, and your family representative is within arm's distance, and they're listening to the entire call. Again, if you tried to say something on that phone call and, and tell your family what was happening, they would hang up the call. Just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They would cut the call short and just hang up and then explain to your parent later that, oh, they were manipulating and we don't allow that. And mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, we were really suppressed in every way possible mm-hmm. from being able to advocate or being able to reach out and have any kind of oversight, which is incredible to believe that states know about these programs existence. And again, there's just no oversight there, which I I don't think parents understand that when they admit their children to these places that the state can't just walk in. There's no kind of investigative body who would look into anything. Mm -hmm. And then when parents do try to complain, who do they go to? Because the states are saying, that's not our jurisdiction. Right. And everyone's just wanting to kind of put their hands up and, and be free of that uh, obligation and responsibility. Right. Oh, right. And I think, yes, there are so many programs that are still in existence today. This is definitely not a problem that uh, has gone away with time. I think to go back just for a moment before we move forward to talk about Synanon. And the program there, I know, you know, there are some chilling stories from Synanon. I know as, you know, it continued on there, from what I remember, there were stories uh, where uh, forced abortions, they were really against having children in the group. The men or maybe the women too needed to shave their heads, just sort of, you know, all look like either the leader or just do things they were told to do just because they were told to. And also that there was this thing called the game where the teenagers or kids would sit around and they, it was their job to endure being horribly mistreated and publicly shamed. And then they had to do it. They had to be cruel to the other people in the room and would get kudos, the the more awful and devastating they could be and really cut someone down to the quick, then they would be praised. And that there was this sense that you were doing it for the other person's benefit, that there are people who have very serious PTSD from having been involved in this circle. And it's 
a couple of them I know have come to me. And when I used to have support groups in my office where people were sort of sitting in a circle, they would make a U-turn. They just went right in the office and left. And I would kind of need to talk to them in the hallway and say, I, why don't you, you don't have to participate. Just stand up by the door. I'll leave the door open. Just, I want you to see that what you went through in these moments was um, so pathological and so sadistic that by and large in the world, it does not get repeated. But in these, in these places, it does get repeated. And so I'm curious about your experiences with those kinds of moments of being in a group and how you were supposed to treat each other. So very similar to the structure of Synanon and, and so many other sorts of behavior modification practices and cults that we know and have studied. So again, once you got to the facility, one of the first things that they would have you do is to write home a confession letter to your parents. And you had to confess to anything that ever happened that maybe you noticed that you got extra change back at a store and you didn't turn around and give them that dollar back. You had to tell about every little uh, character shortcoming that could potentially reflect back on, on you. And so the, the teaching was, is that we had to be accountable. And that word still makes me cringe to this day. And I know in a normal, healthy working fashion, accountability is great. But within these walls, we were taught to be accountable for everything, including people who had been sexually abused at a very young age. They had to be accountable for it. They had to own up to what they did to put themselves in that situation to be abused. And this was drilled in every single moment of every single day we were taught to be accountable. How did you put yourself in that position? And again, it did not matter what happened to you or any other kinds of outside circumstances. So we also saw a lot of children who had previous trauma and who were being abused at home. And then now they're put into this very militant atmosphere where they are having to take ownership for these just horrifyingly gruesome things that happened to them. What would happen? And again, this is how you moved up in the program to eventually go home, right? That's the carrot on the stick out in front of you. It's like, I want to get out of here. I want to go home. I don't want to be here. And so we had to, what we called is call each other out. We had to call each other out. And every single day we would have group, which was an hour long session where we'd sit in a circle and people would talk about different things that they're processing or working on. And we had to give feedback. The feedback process would look like this. The person would tell their story or explain what's going on with them. And everyone would raise their hand and would want to give feedback because that would make you look good, right? That's going to give you that uh, criteria that you need in order to get out of there. So You'd give feedback. The person who sh was sharing would stand up and they would put themselves in what they called an open position. So they had to have palms up and out to the side, nothing in front of them. They had to have their shoulders back, chest up in an open position, ready to receive this feedback. Mm -hmm. 
And we would give feedback in a couple of different ways. And again, at surface value, these things seem like they could almost be helpful, but they were really weaponized in a way that was so damaging, right? I mean, I think we see that a lot is that this could have been beneficial. <laughs> uh, but what we would say is, my experience of you is, and a lot of times what that turned into was just they would try to find the most vulnerable part of your psyche or of your emotional state, and they would completely exploit that. My experience of you is that you are using the sexual abuse that you experienced for attention. My experience of you is that you are faking and that you are a liar, and you would go through and 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 just person after person. So by the time that you're done receiving feedback, you're exhausted. You're emotionally spent, broken down. And this feedback would come from other students. It would come from staff. And we also had um, seminars that we had were required to graduate these seminars. And within these seminars, um, it was a really a really scary experience. There's a lot of hype around the seminars, right? It's a very stimulating experience. And you also know that you have to graduate this. And each one was about two or three days long. You have to get through this process in order to go home. And there's so many things. And what what we know now is that uh, it would actually be determined beforehand who would make it through and who wouldn't we had what was called a seminar facilitator. And this person would walk us through these different processes that were supposed to uh, strip us of our image, which is uh, our identity that we carry with us. So is it like, uh, I'm into hip hop music. And so maybe that's kind of my style and how I dress and how I talk or Maybe I'm a skateboarder, and I know this is all so stereotyping, but this is what was taught to us. Uh, you know, maybe you're into uh, punk rock music and you wear a lot of black. And so the point was to get us out of our image and to return us back to being a what they called a magical child before we were tainted by the world and before we started making all these bad decisions. So it, it was a lot of um, very heavy and vulnerable discussion about trauma in front of large groups of people, and then just being completely torn down by the facilitator who would then give you feedback. And of course, we'd all take turns giving this person feedback, or you would be the person receiving and get feedback from everybody in the room. And um they had a process called the lifeboat process. And there's actually a short film on YouTube about this process. While I won't say that the video on YouTube accurately reflects my experience, it gives kind of a general um, idea of what this was like. Mm -hmm. But we would go around a room of people and they would have almost kind of two lines of people that you would just move down each person at a time and mm -hmm. you would give them a vote to live or die. And you could only vote mm -hmm. two people to live. So you would go through and um, I believe it was during this process, it, this may have been a separate process. Sometimes these things just all get meshed together. Uh, but if you couldn't remember 
their name, you would say, I don't care enough about you to remember your name. And then you would give them a live vote or a die vote. And so you would say, you die, you live, you die, you die, you die. At the end of the process, essentially what they get to is, did you earn yourself a seat in that lifeboat? And how is that a reflection of your life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just of everything they did was, how is this a reflection of your life? How is this a reflection of you? And so there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shaming that uh, at the same time, we were so terrified to do anything wrong because the punishment was so harsh. Mm-hmm. But in that same essence, it was you had to conform. Mm -hmm. You had to play the game if you wanted to get out. You know, years ago, there was a situation with this place called the McMartin Preschool, I think it was. And there had been um, these accusations of sexual abuse, ritual sexual abuse. And a lot of these people went to jail. And turns out that it didn't happen. And so why is it that these kids, little kids, started confessing? And they've actually learned a lot from what happened with the McMartin child. What happened was they had these social workers who were working for the courts. And little kids want grownups to be happy with them. And so... When the social workers would say, you know, did someone touch your body in a certain place? And did this happen? The kids would say no. And then the social worker looked disappointed. And then they would ask again, are you sure? Are you sure? And then the kids would say, well, maybe. And then they'd see the social worker smile and lean in, like, tell me more. And so the kids started kind of creating stories. And so they learned a lot about now when, when people are working with people in the courts or they're interviewing people that you need to not be showing that you're happier with them because they're saying what you want them to say and you're saying what they're saying what you need to hear or you want to hear um, and that you're supposed to be a blank slate. But in these places, I'm sure people could tell right away if they were giving the quote unquote right answer. And it had nothing to do with the fact if it was true or not. And sometimes it seems like you needed to say things about yourself or let yourself be talked about in a certain way or felt about in a certain way just because it kind of got you off the hot seat or it got you from or kept you from being abused, you know, or or accused of withholding or whatever else. Uh, It gets so confusing in people's minds, especially if what you're saying too, is that you were supposed to be stripped of yourself, of your identity. And so, you know, at some point while we're talking, (laughs) which will probably be the next episode, we're going to talk about how you regain yourself. Um, But I'm just wondering about the social psychological piece. So in those environments, People were probably reading the staff's faces and reactions. Oh, and we were told without any trying to hide what they were doing, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. if something was not shocking enough or not, I'm going to put this in quotes, but not bad enough, Mm -hmm. that we had to make it more dramatic. Mm -hmm. So 
back to these confession letters that we had to write. Mm-hmm. If what you wrote in there was, I had a cigarette one time and I smoked pot twice out behind the house in the garage and I lied about uh, not eating the cookies, they would come back and say, that's not good enough. You need to, you need to tell it all. You really need to, uh, what they would say, stand in your excellence. You need to stand in your excellence and you need to just be honest. And so then what would happen is that people would start embellishing their stories. And I actually have a very close friend of mine who I know she would be fine with me speaking on this, but she and her confession letter, they had told her to rewrite it, I think three or four times. And so eventually she just said, you know what, fine. I was selling my body for money and I was addicted to heroin and mm-hmm. came up with all of these very <laughs> elaborate and extreme. And she had never had tried drugs ever. And what was interesting about this is that that was also my view of her when I was in this program with her is that I had always thought, oh, she struggled with drugs and she had this issue with men and, and all of these other ideas that were never actually a part of her character or part of who she was at all. Mm-hmm. So for years, uh, what they would do to people, they would put people on what they call a challenge. So I know for one student, they said that she was what they call sitting in her crap, which could mean a number of things. She was sitting in her crap. She was not progressing through the program like how they thought she should. And so they made her carry around a 30-pound box everywhere she went. As punishment? As what, what was the goal there, potentially? I think the goal was, first off, it was humiliating. Because you don't want to be seen walking around with this. Sometimes it would be a bucket of bricks or uh, a just box full of stuff. And so, you know, people are going to be looking at you. It's, it's shameful. It's humiliating. And you also know that you're in trouble and it's a nuisance. You're having to go by the same structure, Mm -hmm. walking in line, making sure that you're in a military style line structure, holding this box. And there were a lot of times that we would wait in line for 45 minutes outside of the cafeteria or outside of our our med room. And so that's going to be really heavy and you better not drop it because that's another punishment. Wow. I'm just thinking about carrying this load around, I mean, emotionally and figuratively and, and what you will be willing to do or say to be able to stop doing this. That's I'm sure is awful, you know, for your back, for your body, uh, everything. Yeah. Everything. Well, and when it goes on for, weeks at a time. I mean, there was no break. There was no relief. I also heard of another program, and this one is in Montana, or was in Montana, and this was called uh, Spring Creek Lodge. The school that I went to was called the Academy at Ivy Ridge in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. So at Spring Creek Lodge, they would sometimes take a group of students and they would make them hold a log over their heads all night for hours and hours and hours and hours and deprive them of sleep in the meantime. And if that log hit the ground, 
every single student would lose all of their points, all of their levels, and they would have to completely start their program over again. Mm. And so we also knew that that was in their capability at any time to say, you're starting over and to put you in what they call study hall or put you in a room, uh, which was essentially solitary confinement. And uh, they called this intervention. And most programs had different language for these rooms. There were several, several facilities that also practiced what they called observational placement or OP, which means you would lay on the ground in a prone position with your chin up, uh, touching the ground and your hands behind you, almost in kind of like a hog tie position. Mm -hmm. And you would have to maintain that pose for, again, hours and hours and hours. You were not allowed to lick your lips, scratch your face, move in any kind of way, or even avert your eyes from looking forward. Or you would be physically restrained. So there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of force. And even for the students who didn't go through that personally, it was traumatizing to watch and to see and to hear screaming or other thuds coming from a a room next to you, things like that. You just, you knew what was happening. You knew what was going on. And it was so painful to watch people crumble under that pressure. That's a lot to maintain that kind of environment every day. I was there for two and a half years. So from the time I was 14, and I've heard that there were programs that took kids as young as eight years old, mm-hmm. all the way up to 18. And I've also heard that there's programs that even once people turned 18, they still would not let them leave. Or if they would let them leave, sometimes students were given what they uh, called an exit plan. And your exit plan was essentially a contract between you and your parents in the facility that stated what you would get when you turned 18 if you decided to leave. So because they had this incentive to keep you there, Mm -hmm. a lot of times what they would give you was $20 and a bus ticket. And I know a lot of people who took that exit plan because they were like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to get out of here. Uh, But, you know, these institutions are in little rural towns out, you know, 200 miles from the closest city. Mm-hmm. And so that really cuts down a lot of your options for just walking out of the facility or trying to do anything like that. I don't mean to gloss over all that you just said. It's all devastating and awful and disturbing, horrific. And I, you, you mentioned something though about waiting in line to eat and then also waiting in line to get meds. So I'm wondering about the meds and what happened there and how they were used and abused and given out and why. The medication issue. And again, we're going to see different cultures from facility to facility. These medications, we've we've already covered that no one here is qualified or has the education to be providing any kind of treatment. So what we would see a lot of times is that they're going to put everyone on Seroquel or the same dose. Every single person in the facility is going to get the same thing or complete medical neglect, which happened 
constantly people need requiring medical attention. I had a friend of mine who was actually in my group, in my family. I, you know, once you go through something like this with people, you have just this love that will never go away. That is your family. So this student had dislocated her arm in gym class. And you could visibly see her shoulder is slumped down. I mean, it just, it visibly. And she was in a lot of pain. So they told her to write a medical request. So she fills out a form, right? Everything is so procedural and it's nonsense because the issue never gets taken care of. So she writes this medical request form and essentially they told her to drink water. They promised that they would somehow maybe get her help. Uh, I will tell you that her arm stayed like that for two months. She was in agony. And so then they started targeting her anytime that she would ask for help with her arm or, or even I remember her standing in line and just quietly crying and they would give her punishment for that. So that is not the only situation like that. It was quite common for people there to get athlete's foot. Uh, We even had issues with girls growing mold in their hair. Um, I have also been made aware of forced abortions and other gynecological services that they were not, again, qualified to do. Uh, So what happened there is incredibly dangerous. One more thing before you go. I'm so grateful to Caroline for not only having me on her show where, well, actually that prompted a lot of the discussions we're having today, but with all of the work that she's doing to get the word out. I know there was a recent documentary about Paris Hilton and others who were tremendously mistreated and abused and neglected in so many ways. A documentary done by a woman I know named Arlene who actually helped to work on the Nexium docuseries I was on called Seduced. There are a few things that I wanted to make sure to mention today from part one of my conversation with Caroline. First of all, this is in praise of all the people who have been brave enough to come forward when they weren't believed before, when they were told by the people who were controlling them that they were never going to be believed. And have gone through not being believed now even as adults telling their stories. And they're still pushing forward, hoping that somebody listens. And I think it's really quite incredible that for many people who are pushed away into these systems because they're having one issue or another, what they really need is to be treated kindly, to be treated professionally, and to also have themselves looked at psychologically, sometimes medically, and have the family system also looked at, because sometimes that, as we know, is the cause of certain kinds of behaviors. But I think sometimes, unfortunately, parents get tired of having to deal with someone who they don't quite know how to help or they no longer have the patience for or the people who just didn't turn out the way they had wanted in their children, the people who are sent to some of these basic labor camps, 
people who also are sent for forced conversions for being gay, trans, anything that's outside this ideal and conservative picture of what their children were supposed to be, even though their parents are the ones who created them. And so, what is really important to talk about is that while some of these places, I have to say, are okay, run by people who really do care, with programs where they really get to the heart of the issue and don't just decide to be cruel to these people for no reason. What also happens, though, is that there are many places that are truly, truly awful. The people involved are not allowed to speak to their families about what's happening. They're not even allowed to speak with each other. And as I've said many times on the show, so much happens that shouldn't happen and continues to happen that people get away with because they're in a shroud of kind of secrecy. People are too afraid to talk. Or they've come to believe that there really is something wrong with them and they deserved to be mistreated in this way. And that leaves them sometimes too confused to know that something awful did happen to them for no reason and through no fault of their own. But I think part of the other reason that I started this show was to expose the people who should be exposed to help people have a voice to share their experiences and to finally be believed. I research the people who are on this show and I make sure they're not coming on just to badmouth something just because they didn't have a good time or it wasn't a good experience for them or to get back. These people have real stories that can be backed up by real facts. And I want you and I want so many others to trust what they say because all the times that we don't trust them, the people who have mistreated them get away with it that much more. I think it's also important that there are times that people are coming home from some of these programs and you can see how much they have changed. You can see because they've shut down they're acting in a way that you've never seen them act before. They seem jittery and jumpy. They seem traumatized. They don't seem like themselves. And so for parents, don't be happy that they're now not, quote unquote, acting out anymore. Be alarmed that they seem like a hollow or traumatized version of themselves. So, while I want to be able to give a message to the teens, and now the grown-up teens, and I will do that next week, today's message is for parents. Do your research. Find out why people have left a particular program. Find out why people have sued it. Find out what the history is of that place, and any kind of legal records, and the credentials of the people running it. 
Some of the people running these programs and some of the staff have been in prison for abuse in the past. Some of the people in charge have zero training to work with teenagers or behaviors or addictions and really shouldn't be left working with anyone. There was a client of mine here in Los Angeles, just in case any of you think these things happen in far off places and that this doesn't happen anymore. This was just last year. Their daughter was stealing, was using up their credit cards, was cheating on tests, was being the mean girl at school and getting other people to be mean to other people, was orchestrating a lot of very bad behavior and wreaking havoc, setting up fake accounts online, defaming people, doing cyber harassment, and was being cruel. And one of her parents contacted an educational consultant, an educational psychologist, actually, who said, oh, call this number. It's a kind of clearinghouse for some teen treatment places. They're outside of Los Angeles, but they're probably good. This clearinghouse has a good reputation. So the parent then called this place, the mom and dad actually called this place, and spoke to the person in charge, who they said sounded really wonderful. And then they told me that what they were going to do was they were going to send their child there, send their daughter there. And there was something else that the place provided where they were going to have someone to come get her, to bring her there. And that was going to be something that was going to be really helpful to the parents because they knew if they had to get her in the car and bring her somewhere or get her on a plane to bring her somewhere, it would have been a nightmare. So they were so happy someone else was going to come get her for them. And then both of them noticed the look on my face when they told me this. And they asked me why I made that face. And I said, have you sent her to a therapist? And they said, no, we've sent her to her school counselors who have sent her to the principal's office and we've grounded her and we've taken away her computer and her phone access. And she still somehow finds a way to get back online and she runs up $10,000 in our credit card and we can't pay the bills. And we have four other kids and she uses up all of our time and we do love her, but the other kids are starting to hate her. And there's so much tension. Maybe if we just send her away, then she will know how serious her behavior is. And someone else who's had experience with teens, will be able to correct it. And then when she comes back home, hopefully she'll be more manageable. So they knew nothing about this place. They knew nothing about its history. They knew nothing about the people in charge. And they were just thinking that they were happy and relieved that someone would be able to fix her. So... I said, do you know who this person is who's going to be coming to get her? And they said, no, but we assume that it's someone who knows how to handle a teenager who doesn't want to go somewhere. So I said, imagine for a moment you are 14, 
are laying in bed at night, and suddenly someone who's big and burly, and maybe more than one person, takes you out of your bed, puts you in a car or a van, and takes you somewhere, and you don't know where you're going. And the worst part of it all is that your parents just stand there and do nothing. They're the ones who have let these people into your home to steal you. Do you imagine that that would traumatize you forever? So they stopped for a moment and thought about it. They did their research, and they found some tremendously awful things online. But they still knew that her behavior was out of control, and she probably did need to go somewhere. So they found a therapeutic boarding school, which was actually a wonderful place. It started to make her feel good about herself. She was diagnosed with ADHD, Attention Deficit with Hyperactivity Disorder. It's not something that they knew she had. It's not something she knew she had, but it turns out she did. And she was able then to understand why she was creating so many diversions and distractions and getting in trouble so often, because sometimes she didn't remember what the teacher asked and she wanted to hide the shame, and it was easier to be sent to the principal's office than to feel shame in front of her classmates and many other things that made her feel like she needed to reach out for help and do some outrageous things just to be able to get people's attention. But she didn't want to be punished. She wanted people to ask, what's wrong and how can we help you? And now, after a couple years at the school, she is in charge of the school newspaper. She is somebody who is fully blossoming. They did an IQ test, and whether or not you think they have reliable results, Turns out her IQ was extremely high. And one of the things she was doing by sometimes getting into trouble was occupying her mind. She has a great mind and she needed more to keep her feelings stimulated. So, what you want to be able to remember is just like with a picture I posted of a flower a couple years ago on Facebook that when a flower starts to die, you don't just tape its petals back on to the stems. You change the soil that it's in. You change its environment. You give it nutrients. And you help it grow. And so if that works for a flower, you can only imagine how well that works for a child of any age. Make sure that you give them environments to be in that nurture them and don't harm them. Again, do your research because I know you want to do the right things for your children. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. 
So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.